and we'll begin our time reading 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. There John writes this. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, or I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. These are the words of God. Please be seated. The idea of manifesting your dreams or making your dreams a reality is is by no means anything new. Even if you're not familiar with that concept of manifestation, you've heard it spoken of in a variety of ways. It was popularized years ago with the book The Secret, which proclaimed this idea that through the power of positive thinking and through sheer self-determination, you can experience whatever it is you want to experience. One proponent of this belief system said that manifestation simply means we are able to make everything we want and feel and to experience a reality purely through our thoughts, our actions, and our emotions. This is a belief system that I trust most of us in here can quickly identify as ridiculous and utterly foolish, I hope. And yet even if none of you might talk about manifesting your dreams on a regular basis, It is easy for many of us to to turn our Christian faith into something that sounds very similar to that. For so many times when we speak of what we want to see in our own lives, whether it's greater obedience, greater levels of self-discipline, we speak of it as if we're simply trying to will it into existence. Just consider the way we typically give advice to people who are struggling in the faith or struggling in any number of ways. Even as Christians, our typical advice can sound something along the lines of, you can do this, you got this, just keep your head down, push through, and things will get better. And we don't intend to proclaim some self-manifestation type of belief, but when our advice and when our own strategies really revolve around the idea of self-willed determination, we sound just as foolish and unhelpful as these individuals proclaiming the power of positive thinking sound to us. Thankfully, as we look at the letter of 1 John, and as we look throughout all of Scripture, we realize that the message of Scripture is far from the the power of positive thinking. It's quite the opposite. Instead of telling us as believers that we must simply feel hard enough or believe hard enough to manifest that which we need, the Bible comes in and says, no believer, what you need has already been accomplished. It's already been done. You just need to realize what Christ has already done for you. As we come back to 1 John, we see that that this is the precious encouragement that John offers to his own believers, believers who who are facing difficult trials, difficult circumstances. Many of these believers, no doubt, were looking to John for for a strategy of how to overcome false teachers, for a strategy of, of how to stay in the light as John keeps on prodding them and commanding them to do. Instead of telling these believers to just grin and bear it, or just keep their head down and things will get better, John comes to them and he comes to us today with words that are so precious in the encouragement they offer. 
They're words that no doubt would have been precious to the believers in John's audience, and I trust and I pray they're just as precious, just as encouraging to us today. And dear believers, what I hope we see this morning is that our own success and our own determination, our own dreams do not depend upon our own self-willed determination. But they stem from an understanding of the reality that Christ has set in stone for us. Realities that revolve around the forgiveness we've already been given. Realities revolving around the knowledge we already have of the Holy Son of God. And the reality, shockingly, that the battle we face every day has actually already been won. We are therefore not involved in conflict, but of a conquest. If we understand that, we can understand the motivation and the mindset of John himself, and I think we are better apt to face our daily struggles. With that being said, let me go and open a word of prayer, and we'll look at these three words of encouragement that John offers to his believers and he offers to us today. With that being said, bow your heads in prayer with me as we begin. Father in heaven, as we get back into 1 John today, it is so incredibly refreshing to come to a passage that is so rich with encouragement. God, I confess in my own heart that as, as I read so many passages that speak of commands and expectations for me as a believer, that it is easy to walk away sulking, feeling already defeated, ashamed of my own failures. And that is, in fact, a struggle so many of us believers know well. And so, God, in light of that common struggle, I pray that we might hear these words of John with new ears. Might we see these precious truths with new eyes. Might we be awestruck by the reminder of the fact that you do not rely on our strength. That you do not call us to simply live up to our potential, God. But rather, the success of the believer is ultimately guaranteed. And it is rooted not in our own self-willed determination, but it is rooted in your will and the power of Christ that indwells us. God, I pray this morning might be deeply encouraging for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you, Lord, that they might see and perhaps catch a glimpse of for the first time what they are missing out on. And I pray that they are attracted to it. I pray the gospel is more beautiful to them this morning than it ever has been, God. But I know that requires a work of your spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, cause their blinders to be taken from them and cause them to see the beauty of that gospel today. Remove all distractions from us, God, we pray. Bless our time. We pray all these things. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. As we look at our passage today, we will see three basic words of encouragement that John offers to three different groups. And before we even delve into those three encouragements, I want to make a quick word about these people groups or these different categories that John references, because I think this can cause us to be tripped up a bit if we don't understand this from the beginning. As I read earlier, John addresses in these, two ver- in these few verses um, people that he identifies as children, as fathers, and then young men, and he repeats those three categories twice. And there is some debate as to who exactly John is talking to. Some people believe John is referring to three distinct categories of people, namely children who are young believers, fathers who are perhaps older, mature, or even leaders in the church, And finally, young men who people say, well, these are just your common lay people in the church. Other commentators argue that John's referring to only two real distinct groups. In that argument, children is a catch-all term for all believers. 
And then fathers, again, is reserved for those who are leaders. Young men reserved for those who are lay people in the church. I, however, tend to fall in a, a third category of people who believes a lot of that distinction, a lot of those distinctions are somewhat arbitrary, somewhat of a waste of time, to be quite honest. And I believe this in part because, as many people see, children is very clearly a catch-all term in 1 John. I mean, John routinely calls all believers children, and so I think to, to say he's focusing on a more narrow group here is a bit short-sighted. Furthermore, as you read not only the encouragement given to children, but also to fathers and young men, you see that, that these words of encouragement are equally applicable to all believers, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, regardless of their level of maturity. Each word of encouragement is deeply encouraging to every single believer within God's church. And so I say this only that make sure that, that we don't get caught up in any confusion here, to make sure that you do not stop paying attention when we get to fathers because you think, well, I'm not a father, so I guess this has nothing to do with me. All right? But instead, that we, we see just how precious each of these truths are to all of us. With that being said, understanding that each of these words is applied to each of us as Christians, let us begin by looking at the beginning of our passage, 1 John 2, 12, uh, 1 John 2, 12a, and again in 13, middle of that verse. Follow along with me as we read John's first word of encouragement to children. He says there at the beginning of verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Again later in verse 13, he says, I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. The first word of encouragement that John gives to these believers who are in such desperate need of encouragement is perhaps the most foundational, simple message of Christianity, but arguably the most shocking. It is that declaration that you, believer, have been forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future. You are pure in the eyes of God. Now, I didn't hear a lot of gasping whenever I made that statement. Not a lot of shock from any of you. And I think part of that is because if you've been in the church for any amount of time at all, you understand this is kind of Christianity 101. This is what we learn in children's church. By Jesus Christ's work, we can be forgiven our sins, yada, 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 we get to heaven, so on and so forth. And so for most of us, this idea of forgiveness is not all that shocking, but when we take a step back, we must appreciate how incredible this declaration of assurance truly is. It's beyond anything we can possibly truly appreciate in this life. It's significant because John himself understands the reality of sin, does he not? We've seen that reality of sin, that, that shame that mankind carries around with him. John has highlighted the reality of sin already in 1 John chapter 1 and well into chapter 2 as well. If you were with us when we studied through 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 through 10, we already read through the fact that sin is destructive. Sin destroys your relationship with God. Sin destroys your relationships with your fellow believers and fellow man. Sin is utterly shameful. It is foolish. It is short-sighted. It is disgusting. And entirely illogical in light of all the pain it causes. And yet, despite how obviously foolish it is, John has also pointed out that it's a struggle that we all continue to have. Even as mature believers, we still sin daily, or at least I do. 
Right? We all do this. This is why confession is a needed discipline in the life of every single believer. And so when John says our sins have been forgiven, he's by no means speaking as if sin has been eradicated. As if that shame has somehow been taken away from the world and this is no longer something that needs to be addressed. He understands just how serious sin is. And I trust most of you in here understand sin to a certain extent, to that same level. You, you know you're a sinner, right? And particularly for those who are young believers, you may find yourselves increasingly frustrated by the reality of that sin in your life. And you may find yourself still deeply ashamed of your past sin and disappointed by the fact that placing your faith in Christ hasn't somehow made you magically able to, to overcome all sin every single day. It's a struggle every believer has. And depending on your background, the reality of sin might, might continually be an obstacle in your own life. That is to say, if, if you're guilty of some egregious sin from your past, even as a Christian, it's easy to, to feel the weight of that daily. To still feel deeply ashamed of the reality of that sin. Maybe it's a sin you've never even confessed to anyone else and you are just praying that no one ever finds out the, the level of sin that you're guilty of. Many young believers who feel ashamed of that sin can feel unworthy to even call themselves a Christian. They walk around with guilt and shame and frustration as they look to older believers and they think, well, they don't struggle with this. Why am I still struggling? And maybe, maybe, I'm not a, uh, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I haven't actually been forgiven even for those of us who have been in the faith in a while, can, can understand that frustration, can't we? Maybe you have a certain sin in your life that you just can't kick. And you're wrestling with it and struggling against it daily and you're praying for God to take it away, but that temptation just continues to come back in the midst of that struggle. It's easy to, to slowly be drugged back into the darkness, to lose sight of the joy that we've been given. It's easy to start questioning and doubting your own salvation and and maybe it's easy to start listening to these other messages and thinking well maybe maybe this other teacher has something i don't have maybe i need to follow after them yet in the midst of that struggle john makes the startling observation the startling declaration and that is that in response to man's need god has given us complete and absolute forgiveness believer you are forgiven he says by his name's sake or for his name's sake John, of course, is referencing the name of Christ, and in so doing, he's referencing the work of Jesus Christ, both past and ongoing. If you look back at 1 John chapter 2, you see John speaking to that past and present work of Jesus. Verses 1 through 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. We see John has already spoken to that shockingly gracious work of Jesus Christ, who stands both as our propitiation, as the one who's paid the penalty for our sins, and the one who still stands daily as your advocate, arguing your case before the Father. That is what Jesus Christ has done and what he continues to do. We read when we looked through chapter 2, Paul's words that describe that same past and present work of Christ as our propitiation and advocate. You can read it on your own if you look back to Romans 8. 
since we read that earlier, however, I wanted us to look at a, a different passage that also highlights that past and present work of Jesus. With that in mind, if you would turn back a few pages to the book of Hebrews. For in Hebrews, we see that same shocking reality, that same shocking promise regarding this forever forgiveness that is offered in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Here in Hebrews 7, the author is contrasting the work of Jesus Christ versus Old Testament priests, priests who had to daily offer sacrifices on behalf of the people's sins to show just how much greater Jesus is than those Old Testament priests, we see in verse 23 of Hebrews 7 these words. The former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Brother and sister in Christ, do you understand the significance of what the author of Hebrews is saying there? That the Son of God daily intercedes on your behalf. He is daily doing the work that assures that you remain in the faith. What this means then is the sin that we are so deeply ashamed of, the sin that we wrestle with daily, is not counted against us in eternity. What this means is what John is ultimately pointing towards in 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, when he says, You little children have come to know the Father. You have been transitioned from that realm of darkness where you were an enemy of God, and now you have been adopted. You are in Christ. And as Jesus Christ so beautifully proclaims in John chapter 10, you are now held secure by the Father's hand. Many of you have heard these words before, but it's worth saying again, John chapter 10, as Jesus speaks the reality of our assurance, the reality of our forgiveness. And Jesus says this, just listen to these words of Christ in John chapter 10, verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Little children in the faith. Mature believers in the faith. Do you understand that your sins are forgiven? That God is not disappointed in you this morning. That God is not ashamed to call you his children. Do you feel the weight of that security? Tragically, all too often, we, we fail to appreciate this, I think. In my own life, when I commit sin, particularly if it's those sins that I, I continue to come back to, as I come to God, there's the part of me that feels so deeply just dirtied by what I've done. And I'm afraid that God perhaps might strike me down in that moment. Growing up, this was the imagery I had of God, as, as if he was this disappointed king who would gladly take my life because I've not lived up to his holiness. But that is not the picture of our relationship. No, we're children of the king. He loves us. His son argues our case on our behalf. And we as Christians, young and old, are eternally secure. 
because our sins are forever forgiven. Now, how much this would change our daily lives if we, if we understood what we sang earlier, that truly we will stand faultless before the throne someday because presently we stand faultless before the throne of God. How much this would change our daily approach to God in prayer. How much this would daily change our approach to our fellow believers who will so frequently disappoint us. And yet when we view them in light of God's forgiveness, well, of course, we will forgive them as well. We know this importance as parents, right? Frequently as parents, our children will disappoint us. Children, sorry, children, close your ears. Right? Your children are going to disappoint you, parents. And there will be times when you are so frustrated and it will be easy to speak with that deep sense of disappointment as if you are shocked that your child has acted like a sinful person. And if, if you are a parent who has done that, I've done that, you see the hurt that, that causes the child as they don't just feel bad for what they've done, they feel terrible because they know they've disappointed you. As parents, we know the importance then of, of making sure our children understand that our love is steadfast, that we will not stop loving them just because they sin. And we must remind ourselves daily the same is true with God. His love is steadfast, it is certain. And regardless of how egregious of a sin you committed, the, the moment you stepped into the, the, into the sanctuary this morning, regardless of how shameful you might feel because of that sin, if you are in Christ, believer, it's forgiven. And it's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. As we strive for obedience before God daily, we must strive with this principal point in mind. We must daily remind ourselves we are forgiven. We don't strive to remain in the light to prove ourselves to God. We strive to remain in the light, well, because he's brought us into the light. He saved us. He's purified us. So why would we be tempted to go back to the darkness, that which is shameful to that which is harmful? No, John says, I, I say to you, children, don't go back to the darkness, don't live in disobedience, because you actually have been forgiven. You are pure, believer. And that is how God views you. Understanding that this one encouragement is perhaps not enough for his people, John moves on to the second point of encouragement, that which is directed towards fathers, and it is equally awe-inspiring. Follow along with me in 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, and again in 14, where John says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. Again in verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. Dear believer, we can be encouraged by the fact that not only have our sins been forgiven, but we know Jesus Christ. We know him who is from the beginning. But what does that mean? Why is that so encouraging? Well, to understand that, of course, it's important to understand that when John says, uh, speaks of this one who is from the beginning, he's speaking of Jesus. Jesus is that constant focal point of John. Jesus is the one that, that John is speaking of when he talks to these fathers. And it is Jesus that he says, you know him. Understanding John's own background and the fact that he walked alongside Jesus, you, you understand just how rich that must have been. For John was an actual friend of Christ and now he looks at you and me and he says, you know him too. You know him and I know him. It's Jesus. And speaking of this Jesus, he says, he has been from the beginning. He says this first in verse 13 and repeats it again in verse 14. 
When saying that Jesus has been from the beginning, I think John is saying a couple different points, both of which are, are so important to understand. First of all, John is speaking to the eternality of Jesus Christ, the idea that Jesus is not some creation of God the Father. We see this in part in 1 John chapter 1, where John already used this language when he said in verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning this word of life. What was from the beginning is Christ and Christ's gospel. John uses similar language in the gospel of John. In John chapter 1, as he speaks of the fact that in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, the word was with God. Jesus is eternal. What is also equally important and directly connected to that eternality of Christ is the idea that Christ as God is also immutable, which is one of those big words that means God is unchanging. God is the same from eternity past through eternity future. God is always God, and we can trust that his character will never shift. The Bible is full of these declarations of the immutability of God as well as the immutability of Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, 8 through 9 reminds us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. One of the most powerful Old Testament passages that speak to that immutability is, is Psalm 102. In fact, if you would turn back to Psalm 102 so you can see just how glorious of a truth this is and why, ultimately, this truth regarding God and Jesus are not just a declaration of his character, but, but a deep encouraging word to his children. In Psalm 102, verse 24 through 28, the psalmist offers these words in worshiping this immutable, unchanging, eternal God. Verse 24, he says, I say, O my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. In these few words, you see both this declaration of God's immutability and and why it was so precious to the psalmist. Right, the psalmist here declares that the God goes on forever, that unlike creation, which wears away like a garment, God sits enthroned forever. His strength does not wane. As Isaiah the prophet says, he does not grow weary, he does not grow faint. God remains God, unchanging for all eternity. And as the psalmist reflects on that, he speaks of how precious it is to him. For the psalmist understands that, that his days are limited. And he's praying for God to, to allow him to live on, but he understands that ultimately God's will does not rest on the psalmist's ability to live. No. He says that because God is the same, because his years will not come to an end, in verse 28, your children will continue. Your descendants, their descendants will be established forever. The reason why the psalmist, the reason why any child of God is able to be confident in God's plan is because God never goes away. He does not fall asleep. At no point in time is the will of God knocked off track because God suddenly stops paying attention or because God's growing old. 
No, God's will remains perfect and perfectly executed forever because God himself is unchanging, he is immutable. Speaking to this attribute of God, one old commentator said the immutability of God is the foundation of our hope. He says this impartially and in light of what the psalmist says. It's the foundation of our hope because we understand that if our hope was in a God who changes, well, then there's no hope at all. There's no security. But since our God never changes, there is eternal security. And think of how precious that truth must have been to those believers in John's community. Those believers who not all that long ago professed faith in Christ, and yet it seems very quickly the plan has gone off the rails. Because very quickly there are already these false teachers that are coming in. And as we've mentioned before, these false teachers were former friends within the church. And so it certainly would seem from their standpoint that things have have gotten off track, God. For these other people are bringing a new message, and the question is, who's to say who's right here? In response to that confusion, John says, no, remember, believer, you know Jesus. He's not changing. The gospel's not changing. So regardless of what these other people say, you can still be certain. You can still know all that you need to know because you know the Son of God. It must have been incredibly comforting to them to know that, and it still is incredibly comforting for us today, is it not? For all of us, especially as we grow older, understand the pain, the frustration of living in a world that itself is constantly changing. When you're young, I don't think you appreciate this so much, and I say that as a 38-year-old, right? It's not like I'm an elderly person. But already I can see how, how difficult it is to watch the world change. Just this last week, we celebrated our youngest fifth birthday. Right? Five is not old. But I, of course, had that moment that I think all parents have where you're looking at your five-year-old and you're thinking, oh my gosh, please just stop. Slow down. How are you already five? How are you already growing independent? I, I just, I just want to stay in this spot forever. I just want to keep my children at seven and five when I can still have a relative amount of control over them. Right? I want to freeze, but, but of course you know you can't. And you know they'll continue to grow older and they'll go through the pains of life and you want to preserve them from that. But you can't because the world's changing. As we grow older, those realities just get stronger, more painful. For not only do we see our own children grow up, we see loved ones die. We see that outer man, as Paul says, break down. We watch as our parents' minds begin to, to falter a bit. And we think, wait, what's happening? We see it in our loved ones. We lose friends. We lose spouses. We lose those that we once were able to hold dear. And it feels as if we wake up one day and the world that we once loved has been drastically changed and changed for the worst. And in the midst of that constantly changing, constantly falling apart world, it's easy to lose confidence in the God who's above all of it. And it's easy to wish that we could just stay static. But in response to that struggle, in response to the reality of a changing world, and the temptation that comes with it to maybe, maybe stray from that which one you know, knew to be true, John says, no believer, no fathers, no Christian 
Remember, you know Jesus. It doesn't matter what else changes. It doesn't matter what new popularized teaching comes into place. You know the gospel. That never changes. And so whatever the world's doing doesn't matter. For your God is faithful for all eternity. How that would change our own lives if we had that understanding daily. I was in youth ministry for years, and so oftentimes when I think of the application of this, my mind immediately goes to you know, junior high and high school students who are not exactly living in the midst of the most joyous years of their lives. Because let's face it, junior high is awful. It's terrible. Right? And, and even if you're not in it, you can remember the frustrations of teenage years, right? Where things are constantly changing. The standards of, of what is cool is constantly changing. The standards of what music you're supposed to listen to is constantly changing. The standards of who you should be friends with constantly changing. And so even as a teenager, you get caught up, wrapped up in this constant process of of thinking, okay, I have to change my personality this year. I have to wear the right new clothes this year. I have to listen to the right new band this year because if I don't, well, well, all is going to fall to pieces. Oh, but dear teenager, if you know the Son of God, none of those passing fads matter matters not what the world thinks of you for you're friends with Christ and you can rest in that regardless of your age the same application is true brothers and sisters do you understand the beauty of this truth that while the other the rest of the world might claim they know all sorts of things that you don't know you can always stand steadfast in knowing that that you know Jesus and he doesn't change regardless of how old we might become Regardless of how much we ourselves might change, we serve a God that is eternal. And because of that, we serve a God whose promises are themselves eternally secure. And so John, speaking to those believers in his own day and speaking to us, says, Dear fathers, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm telling you to remain true to Christ, remain true to the gospel, because you actually know the truth. You actually know Jesus. There is nothing greater than that. And so take comfort, brothers and sisters. For regardless of the world's circumstances around us, we can daily proclaim, I am forgiven by Jesus Christ, and I know Jesus Christ. Nothing can touch those things. These are precious truths, Christian. And yet even these two truths can at times feel somewhat disconnected from the world in which we live in. I mean, it's all fine and good to be told your sins are forgiven and you know Jesus, but that still just feels distant from us when we're living in the muck and mire and frustrations of our daily life. You can certainly imagine the frustration for the believers that would have been reading this letter. Those believers might say, okay, that's all well and good, John. We're forgiven and we know Jesus, but man, it certainly feels like we're failing here. It certainly feels like Everything we're trying to do is falling to pieces. So what do you say to them, John? What do you say to us who still remain frustrated and trying to find motivation daily? Well, to help address that daily concern, John speaks finally to this third category and tells us that not only are our sins forgiven, not only do we know Jesus, but we are actually already victorious. He says this again, In verse 13 as well as verse 14. Read with me again as I read the whole passage just so we remember all these points of encouragement. John says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. 
I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you children because you know the father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Our culture uses the imagery and analogy of war way too much. You watch any football game, any athletic event, and immediately the go-to comparison is, it's a battle, it's the battlefield, right? Who's going to live out to the end? Who's going to win this, this, this vitally important battle? When John uses the language of war, however, of course, he's not speaking in a cliche manner. For John understands that we really are fighting in an actual battle. There really is a lot at stake. As we continue to read through the letter of 1 John, you will see he continues to speak in this language of overcoming. Overcoming the world. Overcoming the Antichrist. Overcoming these false teachers. But perhaps most shockingly of all is this statement of overcoming a victory because he says we're not just overcoming or we, just not, we have not just overcome the world. We have overcome the evil one. Well, who is that, John? It's Satan. Satan. John reminds us that not only is is our battle real, brothers and sisters, our enemy is real. And truthfully, growing up in the church, I feel like I did not properly understand this enough. For so many professing believers, Satan is just this, this concept of wickedness. We speak of Satan in the same way we speak of any evil action, evil deed. But when push comes to shove, when so many of us strive to beat off temptation, as we strive to defeat the, wicked, the wickedness around us, we think of it purely in terms of, of a fight against the flesh, a fight against inner desires. That's part of it, believer. But there's also a very real part that Satan plays every day. This truth would not have been shocking to John's readers, for they would have understood that in In John's own world and throughout Scripture, Satan is spoken of very frequently. We don't have time to survey the many passages in which Satan is discussed. But you can take time to read yourself in in passages like Matthew chapter 4 when we see the temptation of Christ. Satan speaking to Christ, tempting Christ. We see Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 speaking of how Satan actively works to deceive the world. In passages like Jude 9, we see Satan actually engaging in warfare with the angels of God, competing with them, striving to throw off the plans of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Satan is depicted as a lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. And perhaps most familiar to many of us is the words of Paul in Ephesians 6. In fact, if you would turn back to Ephesians 6, just so we see just how real this battle is. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through following, Paul talks about the armor of God that we put on. And if you grew up in the church, you probably learned about the armor of God as a child. Maybe you even sang a children's song about putting on the armor of God. But as we read these words, we see this is far from a childish image. This is quite incredible. For in Ephesians chapter 6, prior to discussing what the spiritual armor of God is, we read these words in verse 10. 
Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Paul says it is in light of the reality of the enemy that we must put on the spiritual armor of God daily. Because like John, Paul understood that we actually are involved in warfare. Do we realize that, believer? When you fight temptation, do you realize you are engaging in war with the devil? How much more seriously would we take our daily temptations if we understood that? How much more seriously would we we take our struggles when we understand that this is the schemes of the devil at work? This is why we must fight with all of our might because it's a battle and their enemy is real. And if John were to leave it there, if we just left it with the reality of Satan and, and spiritual warfare, I think all of us would rightly sit here terrified because who on earth amongst us is strong enough to do battle with, with the one that was able to cause the fall or bring about the fall in the Garden of Eden. I'm not doing better than Adam did. I'm not doing any better than David did when he fell. Who am I? And yet, despite that very real threat, how does John describe this battle? He says it's done. That great intimidating enemy, Satan himself, well, yeah, he's actually already been defeated. He's done. And you, common believer, are victorious over Satan. How on earth could this possibly be true? The reason why it's true is ultimately what he speaks to those young men at the end of our passage. When he says, I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. Our victory over Satan is rooted not in our own ability to fight, but rooted in Christ. The word that became manifest, Jesus Christ, defeated the works of Satan on the cross. He has, in fulfillment of Scripture, crushed the head of the serpent under his heel. And so while Satan still battles today, his defeat is imminent. It is certain. And so we are confident in our victory because, well, Christ has accomplished it already. But not only that, as we continue to fight, John says, that we are victorious because that word of God abides us and we continually fight by the word of God that indwells us. Again, to use the language of Paul back in Ephesians 6, we see the use of that word of God come to light in chapter 6, verse, we could read the whole passage, but just for the sake of time, verse 14, we read this. It says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. The reason why we do not cower before Satan is because Christ has already defeated him and he's given us the weapons that Satan cannot touch. He's given us his inspired word that we do battle with daily. And so, of course, the question we must ask is, dear believer, how effectively are we using this weapon? How strong are we in the word? 
so frequently in my own life, I, I've studied Scripture looking at it merely as a, a, an intellectual exercise. I study a passage so I can debate it with friends. And while that has its place, of course, ultimately that's not the primary point of the word. No, the point of the word is to do battle with against Satan, against the wicked forces that surround us. And so, believer, we are confident in the battle because Christ has already won. Because he's given us the victory already and he's given us the weapon that, that Satan cannot himself touch. He cannot defeat. And so John says, I say to you, young men, keep fighting because you are engaged in a conquest whose victory is certain. You are engaged in warfare with an enemy whose defeat is certain. You are engaged in a war that you have already won. And again, we must understand just how much this changes our daily lives, our daily attitudes, if if we understand this truth. If we understand that daily, as, as exhausting as the battle might seem, as exhausting as daily temptations are, we are already guaranteed victory, believer. And so as dark as this world might feel at times, the end is glorious. For it's the victory of Christ. And the victory of, of you and, and for me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if if we are to carry out the commands of books like 1 John, we must carry them out with these words constantly echoing in our ears. For Satan, our adversary, will hurl flaming arrows at us daily. We will daily fail miserably in sin, and we will daily be reminded of the failures of our past. But in response to that daily accusation, we say, No, I'm forgiven. My sins have been washed clean. I'm a child of God. Nothing can touch that. It is difficult to engage in this warfare because daily it seems as if the world's tactics are changing. The message is constantly shifting and how can we possibly keep up with this ever-changing world when we ourselves are falling and growing old? Well, we can do so because, again, we know Jesus and he never changes. And so we are set in stone. And as we engage in even the most impossibly overwhelming circumstances against an enemy that is outright terrifying, how can we fight? How can we be certain of our salvation? Well, because Christ has already won the battle. Because we know that in the end, our king reigns supreme. And so we fight on with confidence, not because of our own power that dwells within us, but because of the power of Christ that compels us to move forward. And so as we close this morning, unbeliever, I pray that you see how radically different this is than the message of the world around us. Unbeliever, you can wish all you want and try all you want and and come up with as many vision boards as you want to speak of your future dreams and aspirations. And even if you achieve all those things, you will go to hell because you stand in the kingdom of darkness and Satan stands in defeat over you and victory over you. Your only hope, unbeliever, is not wishing the best, but in placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And the moment you do that, your sins are forgiven. And so, unbeliever, I ask that you do that this morning. Please seek me out in the lobby if you have any questions regarding that. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not be discouraged in the failures that we experience and the the daily fight that we are engaged in. 
In times of struggle, let us be reminded and let us remind each other, your sins are forgiven, brother and sister. We stand faultless before the throne of Jesus Christ. In times of fatigue, let us remember Christ who is unchanging. And in the midst of our impossible battles, let us remember that we are already victorious because of the word that indwells us. I pray that's an encouragement to you, believer. It has been such an encouragement to me this week. And it must be our daily encouragement as we fight. With that being said, let us close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for our time today. God, we are humbled by the encouragement that John reminds us of here. For these are truly awe-inspiring points, God. We are all sinful. We daily fail you, God. And you would have every right to be disappointed in us, and yet you are not. For you love us. You love us so much that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross on our behalf. And Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for that. We thank you that you stand daily as our advocate. Might we remember that daily and might we never allow the world to cause us to question our salvation simply because we're broken, simply because we fail. But might we find assurance in that forgiveness? Might we find comfort in the fact that you never change God and therefore your promises never change, the gospel never changes, the message we have never changes God. And so regardless of how difficult this life might get, regardless of how quickly time might pass us by, God, might we daily take comfort in the fact that you are timeless, that you are eternal, and that soon you will welcome us into your eternal kingdom. We thank you, God, that the victory has already been won. And we thank you for counting us worthy to, to take place in that battle today. Might we do so with confidence, might we do so with assurance, might we do so with great joy. And we pray that as we do this, Lord, that you might return soon and bring us home. It is in your name, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.